about fires. When you isolate part of coal, it eventually dies down. But when you slide it back into the fire, what happens to it? It reignites. And some of you, maybe you've experienced life away, isolated. Um, and we've been in this series called I'm In. We, really, we want you to be people who are fully engaged in the mission of the church, fully engaged in the body of Christ, planted in the house of the Lord. Because we talked about that those who say I'm in are people who find the blessing of the Lord. In fact, we looked at a psalm that talked about the blessing that comes when we're planted in the house of the Lord. That doesn't mean we set roots in a physical building. Because we said the church is not just a building we go to. Right? That it actually is a community in which we grow. And so when we isolate ourselves and pull away from that community, we grow cold. And we give in to temptation. We make choices that aren't in our best interest because we don't have a community that are support us. We've been talking about the importance of community, of being together, that when that happens, we flourish. And we flourish because we're in an environment that is suited to help us grow. And that's what the body of Christ is designed to do. It's not a building to which you go. It's designed to be a community into which you grow. And if you're not growing as a Christian, you don't feel like you really have gone far since you've met Christ the very first time, and maybe you don't feel like you're growing, you have to ask, am I planted? Am I planted? Have I found a way to connect in community to grow? Because we are created for connection. God made us to be relational people who are designed to connect with him as our creator and to connect with each other. So we're designed for connection, but what happens? We drift toward isolation, and you've all felt that. We live in a society today that, that, that is, it, it totally uh, values privacy, and while I understand the needs for privacy to a degree, isn't it strange that now we drive into our garages and close the doors, and rather than sitting on the front porch to engage our community, we sit on the back porch, fenced in to keep us isolated. We've shifted as a community from people who used to be together to people now who live in isolation. Why? Because the sin nature does that. When you think about it, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, what, what did they do? The Bible says that they heard God coming. And why was God coming to them? Because God was connecting with them in relationship. He desired to be with them. So God knew what had already happened. Okay, but he was coming to be with them, and what did they do? The Bible says they hid from God. There's a part of the sin nature that always pulls us into isolation to pull away from the life-giving relationship with God. And we pull away and we isolate ourselves. And then they also blamed each other, right? Not only did they isolate away from God, they isolated away from each other and said, well, it's his fault. It was her fault. It's the snake's fault. All to isolate and pull away. That's what happens because of sin within us. But you know what? Adam and Eve trying to play hide-and-seek from God, that's kind of like a toddler trying to play hide-and-seek. You ever watch the toddler play hide-and-seek? Isn't it cute to see what they do? They think, if I can't see you, you can't see me, right? In fact, here's a, a compilation of some cute little hide-and-seek videos to help illustrate the point. Go ahead, Terry. Yes, you get the point. Toddlers aren't real good at hide-and-seek. Humans are not good at hide-and-seek. But we have this thing within us, this, within the sin nature, that, that says if I hide, if I isolate, then I can actually maybe earn God's favor by hiding my sin from him. 
And so we hide our brokenness and our shame and our sin, and we hide it behind things like pride, arrogance, success, addiction. We try to think, well, if I'm just good enough, maybe I can hide the bad enough part of me from God. And we think we play this this hide-and-seek from God, that somehow that will earn his favor. But the Bible kind of tells us something about our sin, and it's this. In Numbers 32-23, which is a great book to read if you're an accountant, right? Numbers is a great book for accountants. It's, it's a lot of numbers, but what's cool about that, it, right embedded in all of that talk about all the numbers of the people of Israel, there's this verse that says, but if you fail to do this, you'll be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. The reality is, even though we try to hide our sin, doesn't it have ways of creeping up in our lives and impacting relationship, impacting our relationship with our Creator to the point where we feel like, I can't come to Him. I'm broken. I'm sinful. He won't accept me. If He really knew the sin that I have done, which, by the way, He does, right? He wouldn't accept me. But here's the thing. Your sins actually do not disqualify you from God's invitation to experience his love and grace. We have the sense that somehow, until I get it right or I become better, that I cannot come and experience God's love and grace. But the reality is, exactly because you are sinners, just because we are broken, just because that is actually what makes you eligible to experience God's grace and his love. In fact, if we think we don't have sin, the Bible says that we're lying to ourselves. All of us have dealt with this issue of sin. And what it should do is not make us feel like, well, I can't go to God with this because I'm broken. I'm a mess. Instead, it should say that makes me eligible for his mercy and his grace at work in my life. In fact, the awareness of my sins is what makes me eligible for his grace. Because what happens? Jesus died on the cross, what, for your goodness? For your ability to hide your sins? No, he died on the cross specifically because we are sinners. And he died for our sin. And because of that death and resurrection and the invitation given through that, we can say, I'm invited. That I'm invited to be part of God's family. We've been talking about how I'm in, and the first I'm in is I'm invited. I'm invited. Have you ever received an invitation maybe to a a party, a graduation party, maybe a graduation celebration or a wedding? We've all received invitations, hopefully, right? At some point in time, you've received them. And when you get those invitations, it's kind of like, hey, there's something within you kind of feels good about it because it's like, hey, somebody thought about me. Somebody valued me. Somebody wants me there. So it makes you feel like you're in. Makes you feel bad. How many of you have ever been not invited before? And maybe you didn't know you weren't not invited until you saw all your friends doing something on Facebook together and you weren't with them. And you're like, well, what happened? And then you start thinking about why you're not there. And you start making up ideas about what's happening and why they haven't invited you. And it doesn't make you feel valued. It doesn't make you feel like they thought of you. It makes you feel like an outsider. Or even worse, maybe you've been invited and then uninvited, which is a terrible thing to experience. And we think that our sin creates God's desire to uninvite us when that's not true at all. There's an invitation. In fact, the invitation, in fact, this is kind of the one thing that's going to be talked about for a while out of Luke 19. The invitation to come to Jesus 
is universal and unconditional. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. The invitation to come is a whoever invitation. It is universal and unconditional. Now, we're not a church that believes that all people, regardless of where you are, go to heaven. That's called a universalist kind of church philosophy where everybody goes to heaven. That's not what the Bible shows us. That's not what Jesus shows us. If that was the case, why come to a cross and die if we're all going to make it there anyway, right? But the invitation is universal and without conditions, unconditional. Let's look at it. Luke chapter 19, we see a, a great story that backs this up. This is a season in Jesus' ministry toward the close of his earthly ministry. He is actually making his way to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, tried, and crucified. So it's that part. He's actually making his final trip into Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. And while he's on his way, he goes through Jericho. Let's look at it. Luke 19, verse 1. And by the way, if you want to follow along today in your Bibles, we certainly encourage that. The Bible app that many of you have on your phones. If you go to the Bible app, you go to menu, you'll find events. The neighborhood church is one of the events you can follow. Our notes are there for you. All right. Also, later you can download them from our website albanync.org, the notes are on our website for you, because I want you to not just hear today's message, but really take a look at it after, because this is something all of us deal with, all of us. Luke 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, so he's going through it to, to go elsewhere, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, undoubtedly, you've heard of the name Zacchaeus. Mostly because maybe if you ever went to Sunday school as a kid, you learned a couple of things about Zacchaeus. One, you learned that Zacchaeus was a, a wee little man. That's right. We learned the, the important things we learned in, in Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Wouldn't that be what you want kids writing about you? You know, Kelly was a wee little man. Yes, well, that's not what I want kids singing about me. But Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. We also know he did what? He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. So we know about Zacchaeus some basic fundamental things. A wee little man and a wee little man was he. But there's a lot more to Zacchaeus and this story than the fact that he was a wee little man. It says in there that, that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now, of all the people in Jericho that day surrounding Jesus Zacchaeus probably had the greatest reasons not to go see Jesus. Because what would Jesus want to do with me? Let's unpack it. First of all, he was a tax collector. Not just a tax collector. It says he was a chief tax collector. So what does that mean? Well, chief tax collector means that he's at the top of a tax pyramid. In other words, he has tax collectors that work under him in this region. And the problem with tax collectors is nobody likes them. In fact, they have their own bracket of badness. In the Bible, we see that Jesus ministered to tax collectors and sinners. They were so bad, they couldn't even be lumped into the general category of sinner. They had their own category of badness. There was sinner, there was tax collector. And that's where they were viewed. Why? Because tax collectors worked for Rome. Now, to give you some history reminder, at this point in time during Jesus' earthly ministry, Rome was the, the presiding power over Israel. They had control 
over Israel. Now, they were allowed, the Jews were allowed certain freedoms like worship and all that kind of stuff, but they had to pay taxes to Rome. And the big reason for taxation in Rome was because Rome also established their military, they established highways and byways and roadways, they really actually improved a lot of the land, but no good Jewish person ever wanted to pay taxes to Rome. Why? Because Rome was a pagan nation, occupied nation who was ruling. Israel, once upon a time, had been their own nation. And it was a reminder that we're not our own nation any longer. We're giving our tax to Rome, a pagan religion, a pagan nation. So they hated paying taxes. Secondly, if you were a Jew and you worked as a tax collector, then nobody liked you because you were a traitor. That means that now, rather than supporting your Jewish friends and trying to revitalize Israel and once again maybe lead Israel to become the sovereign nation once again, you're working for the enemy. So you're a traitor. People would hold funerals for their families who became tax collectors because they were dead to them. So here we have Zacchaeus, a tax collector. You know what his name means? When he was named Zacchaeus, you know what it means? Because names had a significance to him in the Bible. It wasn't just cuteness like we have today where we spell kids' names all whacked up and try to explain them phonetics. But you know what? His name Zacchaeus actually means pure, innocent. Think about what his family thought when he was born. Oh, look at Zacchaeus. Pure, innocent. God's got great plans for his life. But then he becomes a tax collector. Tax collectors were not known for their innocence or their purity. In fact, as a tax collector, they would charge what Rome told them to charge, and then they would charge additional. They would gouge their fellow Jews for money to line their own pockets. Zacchaeus wasn't just a wee little man. He was a very wealthy wee little man because he had people working under him. He had everything he needed. He was wealthy, which brings us kind of to the next point. He had wealth. Why would he need Jesus? This guy has everything he would ever need. Why does he need Jesus? He has money. He has all that he could afford. Why does he need a savior? Life is good for him, but yet there was something within his soul that money could not satisfy. Because this is a guy who could buy it all, that could have it all. But yet there was a longing in his spirit that money wasn't able to fix. And friends, you talk to wealthy people today who are not followers of Jesus, they'll tell you the same thing. That pursuit of wealth and fame, it leaves you feeling empty. And that's where Zacchaeus was. But his wealth could have been a reason why he wouldn't go. In addition to his wealth, his lifestyle would have been a reason why he'd be the least likely to go see Jesus. Why? Think about it. A tax collector that was formerly a Jew whose family probably held a funeral to excommunicate him, that means who is Zacchaeus going to hang out with? He's going to hang out with other sinners and tax collectors. He's going to continue to live a life that's not encouraged toward moral purity or anything else. So he has a lot of money. He's got friends that are going to help him think of creative ways to spend that money on their own pleasure. He had everything that he would need, and his lifestyle, I'm sure, was a bit lavish. And he probably made some bad personal choices because he had sinners all around him. And sinners help influence sinners to do Sin, that's just kind of what happens. So he could have enjoyed that. So what do I need Savior? I have everything I want. I have pleasure. I have all this stuff. Why would I need a Savior? That could have kept him. 
You know what else could have kept him? Criticism of other people. Imagine the crowd watching Zacchaeus go try to see Jesus. They're probably thinking, what's his motive? They're going to go tax Jesus? What would Jesus think of Zacchaeus coming to see him? Well, the story goes on. Luke 19.3, we learn something else about Zacchaeus. He wanted to see Jesus or see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Right? So he was, in fact, a wee little man. When Scripture draws out an interest like that, that he was short, it's making a point. He couldn't see over the crowd. Perhaps the fact that he was short was the very reason why he was a tax collector today. I mean, think about it. Teenagers don't change much over history, right? So imagine growing up with all your peers who are taller than you, and you're, oh, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and they sing songs about you at school, right? Think about it. Bullied, teased, one of these days... I'm going to get my revenge. What better career than a tax collector? You think I'm a wee little man? Well, I'm going to make money off of you as a wee little man. But because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowds. He couldn't see Jesus. But what does he do? He's pretty industrious. He's got a plan. Let's look at it. Verse 4. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, a sycamore fig tree is kind of like oak trees. They have a broad trunk that's kind of a short trunk, and then there's branches that kind of go wide. And a lot of those branches would lead out over the road. And so Zacchaeus but climbs a tree, but you have to picture this with me. I climbed trees when I was a kid. I have not climbed a tree in a long time. So Zacchaeus, a wee little man, wearing a tunic. You have to get this picture in your mind of a wee little Zacchaeus wearing a dress Climbing into a tree. This is not what wealthy, respectable people do. You don't climb a tree in your tunic. But he climbs a tree because something within him says, I must see Jesus. I've heard about this miracle worker. He restored the sight of a blind man just outside the city of Jericho. I've heard things about maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's the son of God. I've got to see him. So he climbs a tree, and it's a fig tree, so there's a lot of branches and leaves. He's hoping to do that in a bit of obscurity just to see Jesus. He's curious. He's got all this wealth. He's got all this stuff, but he's curious about Jesus. And maybe you know somebody right now who's curious about Jesus. Maybe you're one of them. You've been coming because you're curious about who Jesus is. He was curious. He's in a tree. It goes on. Verse 5, and then when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. This is, this is, this is great. Jesus is walking through Jericho. He looks up, and, and probably children who wanted to see Jesus also had climbed into trees. So you got little kids looking at Jesus in the trees, and you got this big, short kid kind of squatty and short with facial hair. And he's wearing some rich robes, and he's sitting up there, and he's standing out among everything else. He doesn't look like a fig. He's not a leaf. He's not a kid. Obviously, it gets Jesus' attention, but Jesus knows who this is. As the Son of God, he knows who this is. And he sees him, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm going to go to your house today. What's so cool about this is that Zacchaeus thought that he was seeking Jesus. But the truth was, Jesus was seeking him. 
He was sick. He saw him in a tree. He said, come down. I'm going to come to your house. This is the kind of invitation that none of you like your friends to make. Hey, I'm going to come over today about 2 o'clock. So ribeye, you know, potatoes would be good. We, we don't do that to people, right? It's not, it's not polite to invite yourself over. In case you've been doing that, stop it. It's not polite to invite yourself over unless it's your parents. You can do that. But it, otherwise, you can't invite yourself over. But Jesus does. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to your house. This is the first time and the only time in the Gospels we see Jesus inviting himself to somebody's house. And it's Zacchaeus of all people. So verse 6, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Why did Zacchaeus welcome Jesus gladly? Wouldn't you, if you were Zacchaeus, wouldn't you be just a little bit concerned that Jesus wants to come to your house? Think about what's in your house. If, if you're Zacchaeus, he doesn't have a picture of, you know, Mother Mary and a candle, and he, he doesn't have Jesus' songs playing on the radio. It, it's not what's happening in his house. And he's not accustomed to anybody religious coming to his house. The only people that come to his house are his friends, and the reason they come is to party. But Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house. So Jesus invites himself, and it says that Nicodemus welcomes him gladly. Why? Because I think something in his heart all along hoped that this might happen. He never saw it coming, but he's thinking, you know, just maybe. Because maybe this, if he is the son of God, and maybe he wants something to do with me, maybe, you know, I've heard about his grace and the things that he's done, maybe he'll see me and want to do something with me. Maybe that was in his heart of hearts, but he never would have seen it coming. Who am I? I'm a tax collector. I'm despised by my own Jewish people. Why would the Son of God, the Jew of all Jews, want to come to my house? But Jesus does. Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. That means to complain. And they said, he has gone to be the guest of a not Zacchaeus, no, no, of a sinner. That's how he was known in town. They wouldn't use his name because he's not pure or innocent, but he is a sinner. We know what Zacchaeus does, what he does pretty well. He's a sinner. And by the way, Jesus, why would you go to the house of a sinner? But Jesus risks tainting his own reputation to go once again to the house of sinners, to hang out with them, to minister to them. Why? Because that was the reason why Jesus came. He never missed his reason. Yes, he also had dinner with religious leaders. We'll look at one of those here in a moment. But he went to sinners and tax collectors. The crowd had written off Zacchaeus, but Jesus does not write off those who are interested in him. And so Jesus' visit with Zacchaeus reveals his acceptance of that tax collector. It also shows something else, that Jesus' priority is to associate closely with those who are lost because they are the very ones he came for. So it goes on in verse 8 of Luke 19. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, now this isn't immediately. They're at the house now, Okay. So we have some time here that we have to use our imagination of what happened. Jesus goes to the house of Zacchaeus after Zacchaeus quickly hides a few bottles and does some other stuff. And it's like, I don't want Jesus to see that. 
Jesus comes in and they have a probably share a meal together. Somewhere in the midst of that, then it says Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, well, it's a given. So he says if, but it's pretty much a given he has. I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Interesting what he calls Zacchaeus. We'll come to that in a minute. But you look at that and go, did Zacchaeus get saved because he gave his money to the poor? I mean, you look at the context. It says, look, Lord, right now I'm going to give my money to the poor, and I'm going to pay back the wrong that I've done. We don't see him making confession of faith that says, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I want you to forgive my sins. We don't see that. But then Jesus says what? Today salvation has come to this house. Did that save him? Did his giving stuff away save him? No. It didn't. We don't have the part of the conversation that talks about it. But we know at some point in that meal, as Zacchaeus and Jesus were together, Zacchaeus' trust in Jesus as Savior became established. And he knew that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the only one who can forgive sins. And because of that, salvation was in that house byproduct of that salvation was that Zacchaeus stands up and says, look, this isn't of any value to me anymore. I have met the real prize of my life. The one thing that none of this stuff could buy me is standing right here in front of me, the salvation of my soul. So he says, I'm going to give my money to the poor. Half of it's gone right now. I give it away, and I'm going to pay back the wrong. You know, Jewish law says if you steal something from somebody, you pay back the value of that item plus 20% or a fifth. He is paying back what was lost plus 400%. I mean, he is not wanting anything to separate his loyalty to his Lord now. Now, does that mean we have to all give half our money to the poor? Is that what this Bible is, is calling us to do? That's up to you. But here's what Zacchaeus was doing. He was eliminating anything that came between him and his obedience to the Lord. And if it was money, he said, I don't need it. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. And salvation came to that house that day. Why? Because Jesus saw a man who was lost and needed to be found. And you know what's cool about Zacchaeus? I think Jesus also looked up into that tree, and rather than seeing a wealthy, wee little man, he saw potential in that lost man. And I think he said, Zacchaeus, I need you. Much like he called Matthew, who was a tax collector, to come follow him as a disciple, he sees Zacchaeus and says, I see value in you. I'm inviting you to be a part of my family. You know what? Fast forward history, a little bit after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Zacchaeus it is believed that he actually became the first leader, bishop is the word that the church would have used, the first leader of the church in Caesarea, Palestine. So he becomes not just a wee little man tax collector any longer. He doesn't go back and do good taxes. He walks away from that lifestyle, follows Jesus wholeheartedly, and becomes the leader of a church in Caesarea, Palestine. You know what's interesting about that? I think Jesus saw that when he looked up at that man in the very same moment. When we see sinners, we see sinners. When Jesus sees them, he sees potential and destiny, who they are outside the label of sinner. 
He says, this is a son of Abraham. He is a person who has purpose and promise. You know who Abraham was? The father of the nation of Israel. You know what else he was? He was a promise. And when he looked at Zacchaeus, he saw a promise. He saw potential. When he sees us, friends, he sees the same thing. He looks beyond our failures and our faults and our wee little ways. And he says, I see something in you that I want to leverage for the glory of my mission. So it's a beautiful story of how salvation came to Zacchaeus, not because of his good deeds, but because he wanted to follow Jesus with all of his heart, and that changed his life. And it's also a wonderful example of Jesus' mission. What we find in the context of this passage is one of Jesus' most succinct and clearest statements of why he came. Luke 19, verse 10. I love it when a person states their vision succinctly, and that's exactly what happens right here. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save who? The lost. The lost. This was a key qualifier. You got to be lost. But I'm coming to seek and save you. That's what made Zacchaeus a prime candidate that shows that Jesus' invitation is universal. And it's unconditional. There was nothing that Zacchaeus did prior to Jesus saying, I'm going to come to your house today. He didn't give his money away to the poor. He didn't say, I'm going to start acting better. He just was in a tree, curious about Jesus. And that's all he brought to Jesus. And you know what? That's all Jesus asked for. It's curiosity and a desire to know more about this Savior. And Jesus said, that's why I came. Because you're lost. It's not good works. It's not acting Christian enough. It's not trying to right all your wrongs. It's simply acknowledging your lostness, your need of a Savior. So the invitation is universal and unconditional. Secondly, quickly, the invitation to come to Jesus requires a response. So this is where we differ from the universalist church. They believe everybody's going to come, go to heaven somehow. Here's what we believe. You have to respond to the invitation. You've got to respond to it. How many of you know that most of the invitations you've received says something inside there, and it's usually initials that say RSVP? And a lot of you are like, what is RSVP? Reserve for very special people? I mean, what does this mean? No, it's actually French. It's a French statement that means to reserve, please. To respond, please. You've been given invitations, so please respond to it. So RSVP is actually French initials to please respond. And so every one of those, typically, you have to respond to. You give them a call, say, hey, I'm going to come. You act upon an invitation because invitations were meant to be acted upon. In Luke 14, we see Jesus eating at the home now of a notorious Pharisee. Notorious in the fact that he was well-known, but Pharisees weren't always great people either. So he was in the home of a Pharisee, uh, very well, very popular Pharisee, who was thrown a banquet for all of his Jewish friends. So quite a contrast to where Jesus had been in Zacchaeus' house. And in this passage, Jesus shares a parable. Look at it. There's a certain man, this is Luke 14, 16, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Now remember, when you look at a parable, it's trying to say something. Usually there's one truth, one truth hidden in a parable, one key thing. So don't try to read everything, but get the point here. Invited many guests. The invitation is open. And at the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, Come. For everything is now ready, but they all alike began to make 
excuses. You ever heard somebody make excuses why they're not going to follow Jesus or why they can't go to church or why they can't connect in community? We've all made pretty good excuses. I like my time. It's my day off. It's my weekend. It's so early on Sunday morning to get together. And we all have excuses. Well, they did too. They said, uh, first one said, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So all kinds of excuses being thrown to this guy who was thrown a banquet. So the servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Not usually the folks that were invited. These are the ones that were overlooked, often ignored. He says, no, they weren't, they're going to ignore me, then here. Go out, invite these people. So, sir, his servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. And here's the key verse. Then the master told his servant, then go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. They didn't respond to the invitation. They didn't come. So he says, send the invite now to anybody who will listen. And they responded, and they came, but there was still room for more. You know, people have excuses for not following Jesus. The religious leaders thought that the law would save them. We don't need Jesus. We're saved by the law. We don't need you. In fact, you come, you're breaking the law practically, Jesus. We're not going to follow you. The law will save us. Well, the law doesn't. And Paul goes into pretty good detail about how the law can't save you. But the invitation doesn't guarantee your salvation either. It must be responded to. You've got to RSVP. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. You've got to respond to the invitation of Jesus. In 1830, there was a man named George Wilson who was arrested for stealing mail. He was a mail thief. And the penalty of being a th- the one who steals mail was hanging. The penalty was death, and you would die by hanging. And at this point, uh, President Andrew Jackson was our president, and he pardoned Mr. Wilson of his death. Wrote the pardon out. But George Wilson refused to accept the pardon. So now there's a dilemma. He was pardoned by the president, so does he die or is he set free? They didn't know what to do. This had never happened before. When somebody was offered a pardon, they gladly took it. And so it was brought before Chief Justice uh, John Marshall, and he sat down and said these words. I read what he wrote. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it's refused, it is no pardon. So George Wilson must be hanged. And he was, because he refused to accept the invitation to be pardoned. Friends, the universal, unconditional invitation is there, but you have got to respond to it. You've got to make a decision. Let's not be George Wilson's and ignore what God has done through Jesus for us. It's got to be accepted. And then finally, the invitation to come to Jesus needs to be shared with others. It's universal, unconditional, it needs to be responded to, and that's why it's important that we who have, share it with those that haven't. 
I bring you back to Luke 14. We just read verse 23. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be filled. When Jesus was about to leave earth, he says to his disciples, go, go into all the world and make disciples. That means you got to find people who are lost, introduce the hope of Jesus, see them come to faith in Christ, and help them to grow. This is not an option for us as followers of Jesus. This is a commission. It's something we're commanded to do, to go and share this good news with others. You know, it's been said that within two years of becoming a Christian, most Christians, so two years after they become a Christian, most of them have lost their unchristian friends. Either because they chose to break those ties and bad company corrupts good morals, right? That's what the Bible says. So I can't hang out with you anymore because I'm saved and I'm going to church. So within two years, most Christians only now have Christian friends. And we see why we have a problem with the mission being achieved. Because maybe you look around at your close circle of friends, you're going, Christian, Christian, Christian. They're all saved. I guess I'm off the hook. I don't have to talk to anybody about Jesus because all my friends are saved. Well, no, you're not. That is not an option for us. Jesus intentionally went to Jericho to look for a man named Zacchaeus who was lost. Had they met before? I doubt it. Were they friends? I don't think so, but they became fast buddies that day. Why? Because Jesus lived on mission to seek and save the lost. Romans 10.13 tells us this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We love that verse. It's the universal expression of that invitation. Everyone who calls will be saved. But here's the catch. How then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them or telling them the good news? Preaching is basically declaring the good news of Jesus. And how can anyone preach unless they're sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So if in two years of your becoming a Christian, all your friends are Christian, what does that mean? Thank God for community, but it also means you're going to have to be intentional with connecting to people who are not Christians. Maybe you work with them and you avoid them. Maybe they live in your neighborhood. They live next to you and you haven't talked to them yet because you're like, I don't want to make them. I know what they do on the weekends. I'm not going to hang out with them. You know what? That's not an option for us. We're called to invite, to share the good news invitation with those around us. How are they going to know unless you go? And your life is a testimony of that already. But Kelly, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I mean, what do I start talking about? Here's, what, here's a good starting point. Just invite them to have lunch with you or coffee and just talk about life and build a relationship. And somewhere in the midst of that, it could be interesting to see, you know, what do you think about Jesus? That's not a very confrontational question. It's not, hey, you're going to heaven or hell. Come on, tell me now. It's not confrontational. It's like people have good thoughts about Jesus. But sometimes they're the wrong ideas about who he really is. It's interesting what kind of conversations spin out of that. Or do you ever read the Bible? What do you think about that? That's a good start in, lead-in question once you have a relationship. You start springing that on at the water cooler tomorrow, it's probably not going to go well with you. A relationship. Get to know their name. Start praying for them. 
Jesus has extended the invitation. Remember, we see sinners for who they are, who they've been. But Jesus sees them for what he can make of them. And we're writing off people right now. They're, oh, that person will never. I don't think that person will ever believe in Jesus. Well, that's what was said of Zacchaeus. But yet, look at what happened to his life. The invitation is there. Jesus said when he was talking to Nicodemus that God so loves the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever. I love that word. Because you know what whoever says? It says you're a whoever. Your neighbor is a whoever. That annoying person at work that cusses all the time is a whoever. That person who says they don't believe in God because they believe in science, they're a whoever. Whoever believes in him would not perish. Who's your whoever? That God is calling you to step forward in conversation with, to say, hey, you're invited. You're invited into God's family. You're invited to be a part of what God wants to do in your life. So let's pray. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads just for a moment. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, Kelly, I'm, I'm actually that whoever. I'm that whoever today. I've been coming to church, or this is my first time here, and, and while I've heard about Jesus, I've thought that maybe my sin would keep me far away from God because he wouldn't want to do anything with me. I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. Well, that makes you exactly qualified for his grace and his love and his forgiveness. And if you're that kind of whoever today that says, Kelly, I, I, I feel like I need to respond to Jesus much like Zacchaeus did, I need to respond to him today. Then you just raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's me. Pray for me today. Thank you. Anybody else? Kelly, pray for me. I'm a whoever. I need to experience his love and his grace. I'm tired of my sin driving me away from him. I know that makes me actually eligible for his love and grace. So, Father, we pray right now for those that are in that place where they know they're the whoever today. Thank you that you invite them right now, broken, flawed, their shame, their regrets. They don't have to bring anything to you, but their willingness to believe in you and to accept that invitation that you've extended to them of forgiveness. So thank you for that truth, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. What do we bring to the equation? Our sin. And what do you exchange? Your forgiveness. Thank you for that truth today, for each whoever sitting in this room, that they can receive that by simply praying, the Lord, forgive me of my sin, that I truly believe that you are the Son of God who died on a cross for my sin. And I ask you to forgive me. I want to follow you with all of my heart. I want to live for you each day and grow to know you better. I know I'm not perfect, far from it, but thank you, Lord, that I can receive the invitation today to be part of your family. And I'm in, in Jesus' name. And for others, I want you right now to think of that whoever. Who is that whoever that God puts across your path? Maybe it's that neighbor, that family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody you have to go find out. If you don't have a whoever, you need to start praying, God, who is my, who, who is my whoever? But if you know them, picture them right now as we pray. Father, we pray for them right now. 
Forgive us for being silent for too long. We want to be people of beautiful feet who go and share the good news. And maybe it's going to feel clunky at first, but thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're going to give us the words to say because you want to see them saved even more than we do. So thank you. You're going to lead us. You're going to guide us in the conversations. But I pray for an open door to do that. Maybe they're not going to be hanging out in a tree for me to call them out. But, Lord, maybe you'll set up a situation where we'll be together, relationship has been established, and we can start talking about the things that really matter. So, Lord, guide us in that. Give us boldness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Boldness to be a witness for you. Not only in how we live, but in the things that we say. So help us to... Be faithful to extend the invitation that you've already given without conditions to that whoever. In Jesus' name, amen.